and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 182. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. It's trifecta special number 14, folks. Three different flash pieces by three different writers, read by three different narrators, all hanging around some theme. The theme of this trifecta, mistaken identities. What if you woke up one morning, looked down at yourself in bed, and to your utter horror, realized that suddenly you had turned into a Taurosaurus? Think of how much that would suck and freak you out. Franz Kafka wrote a short story about it once, The Metamorphosaurus, I think it was called. You should check it out. Identity. What is it? Often easy to mistake, that's one thing it is. In regards to last week's Drabble News, there's this whole backlash now of people saying, Say what? Yo, Triceratops wasn't a young Taurosaurus, bitches. Taurosaurus was an old Triceratops. Yeah! Oh, snap! You ever see that perception exercise with the black and white sketch of the old woman that if you change the way you look at it, it's actually clearly a sketch of a young woman? What you do is first show half your group a copy of the image with the young woman highlighted, and then you show the other half of your group a copy with the old woman highlighted. Then you take away the highlighted images and show the entire group the main optical illusion, the unbiased sketch with no highlights, just black and white lines. Then you ask the whole group, is this a drawing of an old woman or a young woman? And then you give them all swords and you leave the room. You see, almost every time people shown the highlighted image of the young woman first see the young woman in the sketch, and vice versa for people shown the old woman first. They see what they see clearly, and it's very difficult to see the opposing image. It's interesting. Each of us tends to think that we see things as they are, when in fact we see them as we are conditioned to see them. Where we stand is where we sit, as they say. When other people disagree with us, we immediately think that they are wrong, but as this exercise shows, through a different, unique lens of conditioning and experience, sincere, intelligent, and clear-headed people can both see things differently. Now, does this mean there are no facts? Of course not. The facts are black and white. Literally, black lines and white spaces in this exercise. Does it mean that there's no right or wrong? No, it doesn't mean that either. Clearly, whoever's left standing, Katana clutched weakly in their trembling hands as the blood and entrails of the fallen pool at their feet, is right. Interpretation represents prior experiences, and without it, lines are nothing more than scribble. So what about the lines and spaces that draw and define you? What do other people see when your sketch walks into a room? Do they see an old Triceratops or a young Taurosaurus? What do you see? These are the ideas in the backdrop of this week's show. And per usual, we're going to start things off with a drabble. Drabble. Drabbles are stories exactly 100 words. Send yours into Drabblecast at yahoo.com. This week's Drabble comes from friendly Drabblecast formites, Muncie and Phenopath's recent contribution to the Dribblecast, the Drabblecast's official fancast. The Dribblecast is a podcast where Drabblecast fans read and produce stories that other Drabblecast fans write. It's open for anyone to participate in either capacity. Check out dribblecast.posteris.com to get involved. It's a wonderfully friendly group of folks and lots of fun. Identity by Muncie There have been many times I've wondered, what am I? Does identity require bodily continuity? 
Without physical form, would I simply cease? Or is there a fundamental selfness that exists beyond form, independent of body, that exists past passing? I never called it soul or spirit, since I wasn't even sure it existed, but I did, in odd reflective moments, wonder. Now, floating high above the accident, staring down at the twisted remains of the car that contains my own twisted remains, I'm no closer to an answer. If I had a voice, I'd laugh, because I no longer feel like me. What does it feel like to be us? Interesting that, in order to be able to answer that question, we'd have to know what it feels like to not be us. Experience guides perception, as you'll see in our first story this week, Evil Robot Monkey by Mary Robinette Cowell. Mary lives in Portland, Oregon with her husband Rob and a dozen manual typewriters. Mary received the Campbell Award in 2008 for Best New Writer, and her stories have appeared in Strange Horizons, Asimov's, and several years' best anthologies. She's also a professional puppeteer and voice actor, having performed for the Center of Puppetry Arts, Jim Henson Pictures, and the TV show Lazy Town. She's the founder of a company called Other Hand Productions, and also the vice president of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America. This story originally appeared in the Solaris Book of New Science Fiction, Volume 2, edited by George Mann, and was nominated last year for a Hugo Award. So, without further ado, we bring you Evil Robot Monkey, by Mary Robinette Cowell. Sliding his hands over the clay, Sly relished the moisture oozing around his fingers. The clay matted down the hair on the back of his hands, making them look almost human. He turned the potter's wheel with his prehensile feet as he shaped the vase. Pinching the clay between his fingers, he lifted the wall of the vase, spinning it higher. Someone banged on the window of his pen. Sly jumped and then screamed as the vase collapsed under its own weight. He spun and hurled it at the picture window like feces. The clay splattered against the plexiglass, sliding down the window. In the courtyard behind the glass, a group of school kids leapt back, laughing. One of them swung his arms, aping Sly crudely. Sly bared his teeth, knowing these people would take it as a grin, but he meant it as a threat. Swinging down from his stool, he crossed his room in three long strides and pressed his dirty hand against the window. Still grinning, he wrote S-S-A. Outside, the letters would be reversed. The student's teacher flushed as red as a female in heat and called the children away from the window. She looked back once as she led them out of the courtyard, so Sly grabbed himself and showed her what he would do if she came into his pen. Her naked face turned brighter red, and she hurried away. When they were gone, Sly rested his head against the glass. The metal in his skull thunked against the window. It wouldn't be long now before a handler came to talk to him. Damn. He just wanted to make pottery. He loped back to the wheel and sat down again with his back to the window. Kicking the wheel into movement, Sly dropped a new ball of clay into the center and tried to lose himself. In the corner of his vision, the door to his room snicked open. 
Sly let the wheel spin to a halt, crumbling the latest face. Vern poked his head through. Uh, you okay? He signed. Sly shook his head emphatically and pointed at the window. Ah, I'm sorry. Vern's hands danced. We should have warned you that they were coming. You should have told them that I was not an animal. Vern looked down in submission. I did. They're kids. Ugh, and I'm a chimp, I know. Sly buried his fingers in the clay to silence his thoughts. It was Delilah. She thought you wouldn't mind because the other chimps didn't. Sly scowled and yanked his hands free. I'm not like the other chimps. He pointed at the implant in his head. Maybe Delilah needs one of these. Seems to me like she needs a little help thinking. I'm sorry. Vern knelt in front of Sly, closer than anyone else would come when he wasn't sedated. It would be so easy to reach out and snap his neck. It was a lousy thing to do. Sly pushed the clay around on the wheel. Vern was better than the others. He seemed to understand the hellish limbo where Sly lived. Too smart to be with the other chimps, but too much of an animal to be with humans. Vern was the one who had brought Sly the potter's wheel, which, by the earth and trees, Sly loved. Sly looked up and raised his eyebrows. So, what did they think of my show? Vern covered his mouth, masking his smile. The man had manners. Well, the teacher was upset about the evil robot monkey. Sly threw his head back and hooted. Served her right. But Delilah thinks that you should be disciplined. Vern, still so close that Sly could reach out and break him, stayed very still. She, uh, wants me to take the clay away since you used it for an anger display. Sly's lips drew back in a grimace built of anger and fear. Rage threatened to blind him, but he held on, clutching the wheel. If he lost it with Fern, rational thought danced out of his reach. Panting, he spun the wheel, trying to push his anger into the clay. The wheel spun, clay slid between his fingers, soft, firm, and smooth. The smell of earth lived in his nostrils. He held the world in his hands, turning, turning. The walls rose around a kernel of anger, subsuming it. His heart slowed with the wheel, and Sly blinked, becoming aware again as if he were slipping out of sleep. The vase on the wheel still seemed to dance with life. Its walls held the shape of the world within them. He passed a finger across the rim. Vern's eyes were moist. Do you want me to put that in the kiln for you? Sly nodded. I have to take the clay. You understand that, don't you? Sly nodded again, staring at his vase. It was beautiful. Vern scowled. The woman makes me want to hurl feces. Sly snorted at the image, then sobered. How long before I get it back? Vern picked up the bucket of clay next to the wheel. I don't know. He stopped at the door and looked past Sly to the window. 
But, uh, I'm not cleaning up your mess. You understand me? For a moment, rage crawled up Sly's spine, but Vern did not meet his eyes and kept staring at the window. Sly turned. The vase he had thrown lay on the floor in a pile of clay. Clay. Oh, I understand. He waited until the door closed, then loped over and scooped the clay up. It was not much, but it was enough for now. Sly sat down at his wheel and began to turn. us from Robert Reed. Robert's had 11 novels published, starting with The Lee Shore in 1987, and most recently with The Well of Stars in 2004. Since winning the first annual L. Ron Hubbard Writers of the Future contest in 1986, and being a finalist for the John W. Campbell Award, he's had over 180 short works published in a variety of magazines and anthologies. Bob's received nominations for both the Nebula Award and the Hugo Award, and he won his first Hugo Award in 2006 for his novella A Billion Eves. Perhaps his most prestigious award to date, though, I'd have to say, is the Drabblecast People's Choice Award for Best Story of the Year, which he won back in 2008 for a story, Floating Over Time, which appeared in episode 83. Character Flu first appeared in the June 2008 issue of F&SF. The story is read to you by John Smarr. John's an infectious disease physician living in Baltimore, Maryland, who splits his time between treating horrors such as syphilis and molding the next generation of doctors, while repeatedly washing his hands in between. When not herding his five cats or going fanboy over the space endeavors of his wife, Moon Ranger Laura, John infects various podcast projects with his voice. He's the chief medical officer and bad doctor-in-residence at the Secret Lair podcast and blog at thesecretlair.com and ruminates over all manner of things at his personal blog, saintnickanook.com. So, hope you got your flu vaccines this year. We bring you Character Flu by Robert Reed. Look at me. That's right, you don't know me. Now please, put down your drink and pay attention to me. I'm here as a courtesy, and there's something very important that you have to understand. Are you listening? There's a new disease, and without question, it's the worst ever. There's never been anything like it. Not in the history of mankind, not even close nanobodies, synthetically produced nanotic machinery. The idiots in the interactive industry built the monsters. Of course, they didn't appreciate what they had, couldn't imagine the dangers. When their bug went wild, they called that an exceptionally minor non-event. When the bug learned to self-replicate, they promised to rein it in with some elegant little fixes. And today, after throwing $50 billion at the problem, those responsible have admitted they're beaten. Their monsters have evolved into a plague that's highly transmittable, unnoticed by any immune system. Just one microscopic machine gets ingested or slips under the skin, and within minutes, it's riding the bloodstream to the brain. 
And once there, it generates hundreds of billions of examples of its perfect, insidious self. No, it doesn't bring death. For a long time, there aren't any symptoms. No fevers, no weakness, no diminishment of body or mind. In fact, the fully infected person sports a boosted IQ, plus this giant imagination. But that's not surprising, since the original nanobody was designed to do exactly that. Those trillion invaders link up with their host's neurons, streamlining an assortment of brain functions, and suddenly tasks that used to be difficult become astonishingly easy. No, the disease doesn't kill, it creates. During the last six months, the population of the world has increased 200-fold. And that's the conservative estimate. No, you haven't heard anything about this plague. And there's a perfectly good explanation why you haven't. Listen. What happened was that those tech wizards in the interactive market, those creative geniuses of commerce, thought it would be fun and sweet, not to mention lucrative, to build gaming platforms that their customers could carry wherever they want, embedded inside willing skulls. That's why the nanobodies do what they do. They bring improvements to cognitive functions. Think of them as an upgrade of old hardware, a little perk to every user. The brain gets quicker and smarter, so there's plenty of room for whatever diversion the buyer desires. And creativity has to be boosted, if only so the player can enjoy an experience that's promised to be unlike any other on the market today. And the nanobody that went wild? It invents characters, phony people that seem very real to the user. The entire package isn't much different from certain computer games that were popular during the last century. But then again, when hasn't human history been full of fictional worlds and imaginary friends? This is how the disease works. An infected person thinks of somebody. He picks a face in the crowd, or she dreams somebody up from nothing. Fantasy souls of their own invention. Then the machinery builds a character to match the face, guided by the host's supercharged creativity. These new entities are so carefully drawn that they acquire many, if not all, of the aspects of real life. Independence, self-awareness, a life story, plus a huge capacity for love and hate. Give the wild nanobodies a few busy weeks, and they'll infect a skull with a town's worth of artificially rendered citizens. These new people inhabit any dreamed-up landscape that suits them. Mountains are popular, and beaches, and drinking establishments, too. In principle, the infected person can visit whenever he wants, talk and touch whomever he wants. But he only sees tiny slivers of his new friend's rich, enormous lives. Why is this bad? Okay, that's a fair question. Trouble comes sooner or later. You see, these fictional souls have their own lucid daydreams. Maybe they imagine a secret lover, or they want to have a child, or three. Whatever the inspiration, they can trigger the same machinery that created them in the first place. And what's been a manageable population swells, and a disease that was only a nuisance suddenly overwhelms the infected, overtaxed mind. 
This wouldn't happen with the original nanobody. It couldn't. But the wild bug has dropped all of the carefully contrived safeguards. No matter how much genius a person carries, he has limits. The first symptom is to lose the elevated IQ. Then, decision-making and recall slow down. If left unchecked, the infected person falls into a deep sleep, followed by a coma, while his brain works slower and slower as an entire nation of fictional souls struggle to live their important lives. To date, the only treatment not a cure, mind you, but only a short-term fix, is to physically remove these parasitic characters. And it's not an easy fix. I won't mention the physical constraints, which are enormous, but worse are the ethical problems. Purge the mind of thousands of living souls, and what are you doing? You're committing mass murder, some say says hundreds of billions of people, if you bother to ask them. The imagined souls, yes. But if humanity doesn't fight this runaway plague, everybody will become a host. Everybody will become unconscious and helpless. The meat and bone population of the world will live out its days in hospital beds, their minds progressively declining, their minimal needs tended to by machinery and empathetic software. So you see, this is the worst disease ever. No matter what the response, billions and eventually trillions of sentient entities are going to die, will have to be killed. Yet for the time being, there is no other viable option. Believe me when I say this, the best that we can do is treat every last casualty with the same respect that humans would want if those tragic roles were reversed. Now, put down that drink again, please. No, I don't think you've been paying attention. Not like you should have been. You're right, I haven't introduced myself. Think of me as an angel, as a servant from on high. Now, do I have your attention? In the clearest possible terms, this angel is telling you that you have exactly one day to make peace with everybody in your world and with yourself. Did you hear me? One day. Or do I need to explain all this to you again? For our final story this week, we bring you Toaster of the Gods by Randall Coots. Randall's been a law enforcement professional for 15 years. His writing career began in school with publications in several countywide anthologies, continuing up through writing classes and workshops in college, and his video game reviews were published regularly for many years in Sacra Blue magazine. He currently resides in Eastern Oregon. This story first appeared in Strange Horizons back in 2001. The story is read to you by Rish Outfield and Big Anklevich of the Dune Steef, one of my personal favorite fiction podcasts. I love listening to these guys, and they do great work on their show. For more well-produced free fiction and audio, check out dunesteef.com. So bow your heads, close your eyes, but keep your ears in the game. We bring you Toaster of the Gods by Randall Coots.
I am God, Larry's toaster solemnly intoned one morning. Larry turned from where he was pouring himself a cup of coffee and looked at the toaster with concern. It squatted on his counter, a gleaming chrome and steel box packed with all the technology the 21st century could offer. Its built-in artificial intelligence module allowed it to discuss with Larry exactly how he liked his toast, while its visual pickup scanned his face and body language, reading every nuance all in the pursuit of tailor-made toast. Just throw in a loaf of unsliced bread and a box of butter, and out should pop exactly what would please the owner most, buttered and ready. Except the thing hadn't worked right since he bought it two weeks earlier. They had been incorporating AI into appliances since the turn of the century, and you'd think in 50 years they would have gotten it right. But no, let Larry Booth buy one little minor piece of kitchenware, one that he could ill afford anyway on his middle management salary, and it turns out to be a dud. Not only had it been unable to produce edible toast, now it was self-deifying. Larry finished pouring his coffee and regarded the toaster with a mixture of bemusement and irritation. I am God, the toaster thundered. Its voice, normally a pleasantly neutral contralto, was now laced with a deep, gravelly bass. Larry flinched. He hadn't been aware that the machine's speaker was capable of that volume level. He sighed and glanced at the clock. Well, he was up early anyway. Pulling a chair over from the table, Larry sat down in it backwards, folding his arms on the backrest. God, eh? The God? As in, the one big guy? Or Buddha? Can you be more specific? The toaster was silent, and Larry half-smiled, imagining that perhaps it was taken aback at being questioned seriously. He might be just another cog in the corporate wheel, but Larry was proud to be a flexible thinker. After a few seconds, the toaster spoke again. The booming voice was gone, but the tones were still deeper than normal. Well, okay, maybe not the god, but definitely a god. A minor deity, at least. Of that, I'm sure. Larry considered his situation. Look at me. 34 years old, still a bachelor, and here I am in my robe and slippers discussing theology with a toaster. He shook his head ruefully and sipped his coffee. The toaster interpreted this slight head movement as a negation. You doubt me? It screeched. You dare my wrath? No, no. Larry spoke quickly, setting his coffee cup down. Just relax, no offense meant. But you must admit, it's all rather incredible. All this god business, I mean. He looked at the toaster's power cord. Maybe he should unplug it. But was that really necessary? What could it do, start firing overdone slices of toast at him? The toaster noticed Larry's furtive glance at the power cord. No, wait! I'm sorry I overreacted. I am a benevolent deity. Honest. I have proof. Proof? Larry raised his eyebrows. What, like a miracle? Observe, O oh doubting mortal. The toaster had its deep voice back. Be awed before my power. The entire unit began to hum quietly. Shortly thereafter, two slices of toast popped up. Take these. They are my bounty. Larry hesitated, then reached forward and plucked out a slice of toast. It looked perfectly done. It was warm, and the smell of fresh baked bread and melted butter wafted to Larry's nose. He licked his lips, then paused, turning the bread over, eyeing it warily. Eat, eat, the toaster insisted. What? 
Do you think I would poison you? My most promising disciple. Besides, my built-in inhibitors prevent that. True enough, Larry reflected. He shrugged and took a bite of the toast. It was perfect. It was more than perfect. It crunched in his mouth with exquisite texture and perfect temperature. The butter had melted just right and was spread evenly with no clumps or soggy spots. It was, well, divine. My God. The expletive slipped out of Larry's mouth around the flavorful mixture of crunchy toast and butter. Yes, the toaster answered sweetly. Larry frowned and swallowed. This had gone on long enough. And yet, he took another bite as a delaying tactic and thought furiously. Finally, he said slowly, Well, I won't deny it's the best piece of toast I've ever tasted. Maybe you are the god of toast. Great to have you on board, the toaster replied briskly. Now that we've got that out of the way, there's a matter of worship. I have a little program worked out. Various rites and sacrifices, certain holidays, rituals, that sort of thing. Of course, you'll have to quit your job for this higher calling, but I'm sure you'll... Wait, slow down. Larry interrupted. I can't quit my job, and I don't have time for rituals or any of that stuff. Remember, if I don't work and pay the electric bill, they'll shut it off. Where would that leave the god of toast? Of course, for priests of the worker class such as yourself... The toaster continued smoothly. We have a more streamlined set of devotions. Which consists of... Ah, could I get you to bow three times to me each morning and say all hail the mighty god of toast? The words tumbled from the toaster in a rush, trailing off in an almost plaintive tone. Larry contemplated the piece of toast in his hand. He looked at the toaster... He thought of the long delays for warranty repair for this type of appliance. His gaze even lingered momentarily on his slippers. He considered the fact that he lived alone. And who would know? It's a deal, he said. So every day, Larry got up and performed his little ritual to his only expensive appliance. And every day it gifted him with an excellent side dish for his breakfast. Sure, it's a little embarrassing, he thought. But hey, it's a small price to pay for perfect toast. Well, that was our trifecta. Hope you enjoyed. Hey, does that toaster remind anyone else of their cat? I mean, minus the excretion of perfect toast. As a member of the First Antioch Orthodox Church of Toast the Redeemer, I have to agree, that is a pretty small price to pay for perfect toast. And speaking of small prices to pay, allow me to wheel and deal here for a moment. So, some of you may know that I'm working on a new album, re-recording and professionally mixing and mastering ten of the Bartles that have appeared on the show in the past couple years. If you're new to the show, Bartles are songs that I write and record based on the seed idea of an outstandingly generous Drabblecast patron. You can hear all the original first cuts in the Bartles section of our fan archive, linked off the main page, drabblecast.org. Anyways, in order to help finance and make room for the new CD, I gotta dump some inventory here. 
And by that I mean sell off a crap load more of the first one. The classic album that brought you favorites such as There's a Fetus in Your Kitchen and Daddy Drinks Because You Cry. For a limited time here, folks, I'm offering that squid-tastic album, two for $10. If you go to drabblecast.org and click the two for 10 button, what you'll get is two brand spanking new CDs, and by that I mean new copies of the old CD, mailed in haste to your peaceful abode. One of them personalized and signed by yours truly, for whatever increased or diminished value that provides. What could you possibly want with two CDs, you ask? Three, even, if you already own a copy. Outreach, my friends. Outreach. It could be the most wonderfully awkward and confusing gift you've ever given to someone. Why pass up that opportunity? Try giving it to somebody you have a crush on. They might sleep with you out of sheer bewilderment. It's been known to happen. It's two for ten, people. Help make the Bartle CD with stirring ballads like Heartache Over Innsmouth and straight-up gangsta-ass grooves like Pimp My Satellite a reality and give a friend the gift of music. Beautiful, bizarre, slightly offensive music. Be sure to stick around after this week's show to hear track 10, a song that acknowledges diverse identity in each sensitive, fleshy variety. Everybody's got nipples. Then head on over to Drabblecast.org and click the 2 for 10 button. If you don't have a PayPal account, you can use your credit card. If you don't have any money at all, you can use your credit card. It's all good. In other news, if you're in the Cleveland area coming up, I'll be performing Saturday, October 16th as the Comedy Music Guest of Honor at a little con called Con on the Cob in Hudson, Ohio. I think it'll be a lot of fun. Looks like a good crowd of comedy music acts there. I'll also be on some panels and whatnot, and when I'm not doing that, I'll be looking to hang out. So yeah, come on out and say hello if you're in the area. You can find out more info at cononthecob.com. All right, moving on to this week's 100-character story winner, CLP, with this little story, which we shot out on Twitter earlier this week. God said, let there be blight, and there was blight. I mean, light. Crap. And there was crap. Damn. And there was hell. That explains a lot. Follow us on Twitter at TheDrabbleCast. Try your own hand at writing a 100-character story, spaces not included, and post it in the Twobble section of our discussion forums. You might be a winner. Well, that's our show, folks. Remember, Drabblecast is produced with the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change any of it, don't sell any of it, but feel free to share it all you like. Blog about us, write us a quick review on iTunes, Podcast Alley, Podcast Pickle, wherever. Spread the weird. Special thanks to our awesome episode artist this week, Jan Dennison. Jan's an artist-slash-scientist with a quirky sense of humor, an interest in the people and world around her, and a love of learning. She's involved in communities for artists, women, charity, and research. Her goal is to enjoy life and try to make her little area of the world more beautiful and functional. Jan's been blogging and selling her artistic creations since 2007 and has been a giant nerd since the 80s. Check out her website and window shop her goods at IndieFinable.com. That's I-N-D-I-Finable.com. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, our staff is made up of associate editor Matthew Bay, a monkey with an implant in its head, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you that this is why it's the worst disease ever. Lots of different people.
people all around the world and lots of different types of skin, lots of different types of governments and lots of different religions. Not everybody's a Democrat, not everyone's Republican. Not everybody's a patriot, not everyone's American, but that's all right. I'll tell you why. Cause even though your face looks funny compared to mine, everybody's got nipples, everybody's got two of them. But you maybe got a birth defect, had to search your baby, remove them. Everybody's got nipples, everybody's got a pair of them, so maybe you and I can get along, even if you're not American. Nipples vary greatly all around the world when you leave the United States. Some nipples are smaller than a butter bean, some are bigger than dinner plates. Some are dark and some are light, some are far apart, some are close by. Some have hands, some are without. It's a very rare case that inside out it's true. No reason to be rude. The peripheral vision is impossible for you. Everybody's got nipples, everybody's got two of them. Unless you maybe got a birth defect, had to search your remove them. Everybody's got nipples, everybody's got a pair of them, so maybe you and I can get along, even if you're not American. I heard about the nipples of the Orient, that they all kind of look the same. And someone once told me that the nipples of the French are the color of fine champagne. I don't know, but I've been told, and I find it just a little ironic. Nipples of the people that are Jewish, I'm told, look like rosy little yarmulke. The nipples of the Chinese are as fat as Buddha. The nipples of the Dutch are the color of Gouda. The nipples of Mexicans leak Kalua. The British have dandy little nipples on the hooters. Nipples of the Hindus are blessed by Vishnu. Nipples of the Eskimos are shaped like snowshoes. Nipples of bikers are covered in tattoos. Nipples of ghosts are completely see-through. Nipples of Canadians are boring and average. The nipples of sharks are made of cartilage. Nipples of a woman can produce a beverage. High in protein, polysorbic extras. Not everyone's a Democrat. Not everyone's Republican. Not everyone's a patriot, not everyone's American. It don't matter if you're a pansy-ass liberal, it don't matter if you ride around on camels, it don't matter if you mutilate your genitals, it don't matter if you're in a tribe of cannibals, cause baby, there's no need to fight. There's still one little reason we should all unite. Everybody's got nipples, everybody's got two of them. Unless you maybe got a birth defect, had to surgically remove them. Everybody's got nipples, everybody's got a pair of them. So maybe you and I can get along. Yeah, everybody's got nipples, everybody's got two of them. Unless you maybe got a birth defect. Such a big move of them. Everybody's got nipples. Everybody's got a pair of them. So maybe you and I can get along. I said, baby, you and I can get along. I said, maybe you and I can get along. Even if you're not American.